This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 181st episode, we discuss the 1938 mystery thriller, The Lady Vanishes, celebrating its 85th anniversary this year. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Sidney Gilliatt and Frank Launder, music by Louis Levy and Charles Williams, starring... Margaret Lockwood as Iris Henderson, Michael Redgrave as Gilbert, Paul Lucas as Dr. Hartz, Mae Whitty as Miss Froy, Cecil Parker as Mr. Todd Hunter, Lyndon Travers as Mrs. Todd Hunter, Naunton Wayne as Caldecott, and Basil Radford as Charters. Recognition for this movie? The Lady Vanishes was released on October 7th, 1938, based on the 1936 book the Wheel Spins by Ethel Lena White. When The Lady Vanishes opened in the UK, it was an immediate hit, becoming the most successful British film to that date. It was also very successful when it opened in New York. The Lady Vanishes was named Best Picture of 1938 by the New York Times. In 1939, Hitchcock received the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Director, the only time Hitchcock received an award for his directing. The American film critic and historian Leonard Maltin gave the film four out of four stars in his movie guide and included the film in his list of 100 must-see films of the 20th century. The Guardian called the film one of the greatest train movies from the genre's golden era and a contender for the title of best comedy thriller ever made. The film frequently ranks among the best British films of all time. In 2016, Empire ranked the film at number 82 on their list of 100 best British films. In 2022, Time Out magazine ranked the film at number 54 on its list of the 100 best thriller films of all time. The Lady Vanishes currently holds a 98% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 98 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we do every week, what is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie that I was familiar with, but I hadn't seen until probably about... A year ago, it was kind of a gap in my Hitchcock knowledge, so I watched it with your mother and grandmother. Yeah, this has been one that had been poking around for a while, along with like the 39 steps that I believe that we watched while I was in recovery from my surgery last year. And they're kind of a select few of the British Alfred Hitchcock films that weren't from his silent era yet that I think have at least been in the public consciousness, along with The 39 Steps, obviously, and the original Man Who Knew Too Much from 1935. So it's interesting. I occasionally put these movies on the list for ones I'd like to see and need a reason to kind of force myself into finally watching them. I actually enjoyed this a lot more than I enjoyed The 39 Steps, personally. I found the 39 steps a little bit boring. This one kind of had me hooked, although I was watching it during the commercials of the football game on Sunday. So it was kind of in various stages. It was like watching a TikTok video for three minutes. Well, the 39 steps is what got me hooked on Hitchcock. 
I watched it my freshman year of college. I had Mondays where my first class was at 8 p.m. So I would sit around in the dorm on Monday morning while everybody was gone and watch whatever old movie was on WGN Chicago. And the 39 Steps came on. I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I started looking into more and more Hitchcock films as a result. Well, you'll be happy to know that I'm like 95% sure that it's on next year's list. Well, good. I haven't seen it since my freshman year of college, which would be 40, 41 Again, years ago. I, I just said that we watched it together last year. The 39 Steps? Yes. I didn't watch it with you. Yes, you did. It must have been Sarah. No, it was not Sarah. It was you and I. Okay, I don't remember. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I uh, was wrong. I had to remove it because it was unfortunately one of the ones we had to axe between me not setting out enough time for our Oscars show last year where we ran into problems because I tried to schedule over it and because we have a two-part episode in April that uh, is coming up that's also special to you. So my apologies. It was on the schedule. I had to take it off. Oh, uh, well. So it may be a little while before it comes back up or comes back around again. Yeah. Either way, what do you think the movie is about? It's a traditional mystery thriller that Hitchcock is famous for. It really is more about understanding the mystery and solving it. The man, or in this case, woman, placed in difficult situations who has to overcome all of these difficulties and problems and achieve the higher end as a result. There's no real deep meaning to it. It's just a movie that's done for entertainment purposes like a book, Agatha Christie or John Dickerson Carr, who... Uh, was Hitchcock's favorite, who was a mystery writer in the 20s and 30s and wrote serials for The New Yorker. Well, I tend to agree. I don't think that there's a lot of extra meaning to a lot of Hitchcock films. We've discussed the one that I really think has some additional... Well, actually, I, I would say we've discussed the two, to me, that have like additional meaning behind them in Psycho and Vertigo. Outside of that, most of those are pretty kind of pop art in a way. Rear Window is just kind of a voyeuristic thriller. It doesn't have to be about more. You can try and pick it apart, but I don't think that was what it was designed to necessarily do. And most of his movies are not about something more. Even Rope that we discussed before is not really that kind of movie. So I would agree. This is just kind of a mystery thriller with some comedy kind of sprinkled in. Mm -hmm. So it forces me to ask, what exactly is Hitchcock's fascination with spies? It seems like every third movie of his has to do with a spy. Is it just really that simple that this was an intriguing MacGuffin to get involved in it? Or is it just simply that was like his go-to thing? I, I don't know. He loved mysteries. He loved setting up mysteries. He loved having mysteries 
or doing things at dinner parties. I swear that Glass Onion is in large part an homage to Hitchcock because he used to do that type of thing where he would set up clues and have guests come to his dinner parties and solve the mysteries. Oh, so you're just specifically saying Glass Onion. Yes. Okay, so, yeah, all right, maybe in that vein, but you could also say the board game turned movie Clue from the mid-80s has some of that. Isn't Murder by Death in kind of the same vein? I mean, there have been those mystery comedies for a long time. So I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that per se, but... I will say as many times as Ryan Johnson right now wants to make one, I will watch it. And I think that's what Netflix was banking on. In fact, I probably should go back and rewatch. I know we have Knives Out on the schedule for next year, but I would be excited to go back and watch both of them again because they're great movies. Yes. Hitchcock kind of brought that genre forward. I mean, you wouldn't have all of the film versions of Sherlock Holmes and of Agatha Christie and some of the other mystery writers, but for the fact that Hitchcock was doing this, taking mysteries and converting them into film and doing them well. I mean, we did have the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from the 20s, and we had, I think it was Sherlock Jr. that was Buster Keaton, if I remember right. So it's not like he's solely responsible, but I do think... He popularized it. Well, you wouldn't have the whole series of Sherlock Holmes movies with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And I think the serial out of The New Yorker and such, Dashiell Hammett and Sam Spade and all of those are related to some extent to the popularity started with Hitchcock. See, I would make the argument that he did not create the genre but he either expanded or exponentially ingrained in the public consciousness a thirst for this because while i wouldn't say he's like the original true crime like kingpin he did capitalize on a thirst for the thriller and mystery and crime it's kind of like henry ford did not invent the car he did not even establish the first car He just took and did what everybody was doing and did it better. It's the difference between creation and execution. I think Hitchcock was executing at a high level and created a popularized form and really just kept hammering home something that was already in vogue, but just made it better as opposed to being the creator that kind of did anything to establish the genre. I think that it was already established. It was he was capitalizing what was already there and then executing at a high level. Okay, well, but either way, let's get a little more background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? Yes. Alfred Hitchcock weaves his cinematic magic in The Lady Vanishes, a taunt thriller that showcases his signature blend of suspense, wit, and intrigue. Set against the backdrop of a quaint European train journey, this film is a testament to Hitchcock's storytelling prowess and his ability to captivate an audience from start to finish. The story revolves around a seemingly ordinary train ride, 
from a fictional European country to England. As a diverse group of passengers share the cramped compartments, Hitchcock masterfully introduces us to a charming ensemble of characters, each with their quirks and secrets. Enter the enigmatic Miss Froy, an English governess who mysteriously disappears on the train. Her sudden absence triggers a wave of doubt, paranoia, and conspiracy theories among the passengers. Our unlikely hero, the skeptical but charming Gilbert, played by Michael Redgrave, teams up with the determined Iris Henderson, Margaret Lockwood, to unravel the baffling disappearance of Miss Froy. What follows is a heart-pounding race against time as they attempt to uncover the truth behind her vanishing act. Hitchcock's genius lies in his ability to blend humor with suspense, and The Lady Vanishes is no exception. Hitchcock's direction is impeccable, with meticulously crafted scenes and a pacing that keeps the audience on edge throughout the train itself becomes a claustrophobic labyrinth, setting that mirrors the character's increasing sense of confinement and paranoia. In The Lady Vanishes, Hitchcock invites us on a roller coaster of suspense that twists and turns until its electrifying climax. With its unforgettable characters, razor-sharp dialogue, and Hitchcock's signature touch, this film remains a timeless classic and a testament to the enduring power of cinematic storytelling. Thank you. Did you know? In an interview with Peter Bogdanovich, Alfred Hitchcock revealed that this movie was inspired by a legend of an Englishwoman who went with her daughter to the Palace Hotel in Paris in the 1880s, at the time of the Great Exposition. The woman was taken sick, and they sent the girl across Paris to get some medicine in a horse vehicle, so it took about four hours. When she came back and she asked, How's my mother? What mother? My mother. She's here. She's in her room. Room 22. They go up there, different room, different wallpaper, everything. And the payoff of the whole story is, so the legend goes, that the woman had bubonic plague and they dared not let anyone know she died. Otherwise, all of Paris would have emptied. The urban legend, known as the Vanishing Hotel Room, also formed the basis of one segment of the German portmanteau film Eerie Tales from 1919. So long at the fair, 1950, in which the missing person was the young woman's brother as opposed to her mother, and Into Thin Air from 1955, starring Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia. Did you know? The cricket-obsessed characters, Charters and Caldecott, were created especially for this movie and do not appear in the novel written by Ethelina White, but they proved to be such popular characters that they were teamed up in ten more movies. They reappeared in Night Train to Munich, from 1940, also starring Margaret Lockwood, and Millions Like Us, 1943. Two movies also written by Sidney Gilliatt and Frank Launder. They also starred in the BBC radio serials Crook's Tour, which was also made into a movie, and Secret Mission 609. They were played in the 1979 remake by Arthur Lowe and Ian Carmichael. In 1985, they reappeared in the BBC television mystery miniseries Charters and Caldecott played by Robin Bailey and Michael Aldridge. Did you know? And this is going to be a callback. The tune that Gilbert is humming is the early 20th century standard Colonel Bogey March, later made even more famous in the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai, and in our episode. Yep. 
if you're not willing to go back and listen to the entire episode on that, which I would highly suggest, just listen to about the first 30 seconds. You'll get just enough of what you need. (laughs) All right. With that, we will take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 182nd episode, we discuss the Clint Eastwood thriller, Gran Torino from 2008, celebrating its 15th anniversary. Directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Nick Schenk, music by Kyle Eastwood and Michael Stevens, and before you ask, yes, that is his son, starring Clint Eastwood and B. Vang. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we have best performance up. Who did you have down? Hitchcock. How could I have guessed? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's all about his pacing. It's his direction. Some of the camera shots, the scene where Michael Redgrave is climbing out on the side of the train to get into the next compartment, that was all done with camera tricks. And it was quite uh, realistic between that and the fact that Hitchcock had his hand all over, well, he and Alma, I should say, had his hand all over the script. The opening scene was added by Hitchcock. The change in the um, to a magician was Hitchcock. The closing scene with the shootout was Hitchcock and Alma's idea. So... Most of this, yeah, the the basic framework was done by the original writers, but they changed a lot of it in order to increase the tension and build rapport with the characters. I mean, they're the ones who added the cricket-obsessed fans to the uh, script as well. So just on the writing standpoint, let alone on the direction. He's not credited with being a writer on this. He never took a credit as a writer, but he oversaw and was directly involved in all aspects of writing of every film he did. So I knew you were going to go in this route, and I'm going to say something potentially blasphemous. I actually think that I have to hold Hitchcock to his own standards. So when I say that, we've watched and discussed already on the show, and we have a couple more. I think Rear Window is coming up next year some of the best movies he ever did and some of the best movies ever made. And to give him a bit of a pass on some places where I think that compared to some of his later work, he's far superior in his direction, his decisions, his musical choices. This seems a little bit lacking in the directional flair. Like there's nothing to me that really says this is an Alfred Hitchcock movie comparatively other than its subject material and a few of the camera shots. Realistically, to me, what makes the movie is the two lead performances. And so for all three categories, I went with both of them. For me, Margaret Lockwood makes the movie. I think she's an absolutely outstanding performance. She's also my most charismatic Because you have to buy into her character. You have to care about her character. You have to basically anticipate all of her emotional flares and empathize with everything that's going on with her for the movie to work. And while sometimes you can make the argument that an actor is only as good as their director allows them to be or as good as the direction is, I mean, I can take that argument credibly. 
I just think that she outshone what I think the normal things I would say about Hitchcock are on this movie. I understand your point, but simply because you have to take it in context of what other people were doing in film at that time and how things were done. And if you put it in context, Hitchcock was taking choices or paths that no one else had seemed to be following. And as a result, I think, I think you're underselling him just because he improved and matured and became better through age. So did cinema in general. I mean, you can watch a film from 1954 and compare it to a film from 1934, and you can see the difference in technology, in camera work, in acting even. I don't think you can just deadpan it simply because he did better work later on. I think it's in context of what he was doing at the time and what everyone else was doing at the time. So a candidate for purchase for DVDs that uh, you were looking for, not often on streaming. Rebecca is never anywhere because I don't know who owns the rights. There's a copy somewhere that I found a couple of years ago when I was trying to finish all the best picture winners on like YouTube. But outside of that, that's a movie done two years later that wins best picture that I think is a much different and better version of a directed movie. This is just kind of stripped back to me. And while I enjoyed the movie, I thought it was fun and thrilling. And, you know, the mystery is the component of that is there. It's not necessarily a knock on Hitchcock to say he had better shit. Not even that far away. Like two years down the line, he even has said, I became a better director. I understand. And yes, I've seen Rebecca twice. I read the Daphne du Maurier novel in high school in my English lit class, so I was familiar with it. it. That was a Hollywood film with a larger budget, more seasoned movie actors. This is Michael Redgrave's first movie film or first movie role. And yet I'm not picking on him. I actually have him as my best secondary. Okay. Because I think those two characters specifically carry the film, especially once you get onto the train. I could give or take maybe the first, what is it, 15 minutes that they're in the inn yet, and they have to kind of set up a few things. But given that there are other Hitchcock movies on trains, a better example of this is North by Northwest, where he learns from his mistakes. That movie takes, what, three minutes to launch into the plot? And you're already, like, going? This movie takes a little too long to kind of get into what exactly happens because you know a lady vanishes, so why is it not happening for like 20, 25 minutes? Okay. Okay, I'm comparing him against himself. I'm sorry. I know that's blasphemous to you and you can't take it, but that's just where I went. Fine, whatever. Okay, who is your best secondary? I had Michael Redgrave. Okay, so we both had the same one. Yeah, I think he had the most, the heaviest lifting because he had to come across as being sympathetic to her and yet realistic or more practical. He has to have a character turn in the middle of the movie. You have to find him kind of smarmy to start out with and almost difficult to like. And then 
kind of flip on a dime and expect that somehow he's going to be the savior. Like if you can convince that guy to be on your side, all of a sudden things will start to pick up. Sure. And so the, the, the difficulty of like playing both sides of it, where you have to be simultaneously unlikable, but redeemable, I thought was an impressive feat because that, that develops a level of charisma. And again, I think the movie is carried by the two leads being very charismatic and eventually working very well together with the chemistry that they, they possess. But that's a difficult road to travel for anybody. And you said this was his first movie? Yes. He was a stage actor. Oh, okay. That's why. All right. So he wasn't like a novice to acting. It was just film acting. Correct. And it's different. Yeah, it is different. Having done both. You've acted in a film? Yes. In a a couple of different films. Oh, yes. I forgot. Yes. We should put the link out on. Uh... Mm, no, I, I want to make it very difficult for people to find on YouTube. <laughs> Only select people know exactly where it is. I just okay. say that I have a, a movie documentary out on YouTube and then allow people to try and find it if they can. You have to put it in like five different keywords to be able to find it. It is there, but uh, it's it's not something I, I just put out or proffer to to everybody else unless it's apparently one particular teacher at Port Edwards High School who still gets most of his students to go back and watch it every year. <laughs> That's like all of the views are just from Port Edwards High School students yet. <laughs> anyway, we digress. You're most charismatic? I have Hitchcock because again... It's tone. Okay. Okay. You gave yours, so. Yes, I did. That's why I kind of just was flowing through these. So let's just move to best scene since it, we're, we're kind of on a down note here and probably boring the audience with our own personal stories. But uh, all right. I had late night show tunes, which is my only scene from the inn. I have Miss Froy helps Iris. The lady vanishes. So the initial scene where Miss Froy goes missing. Searching the luggage car, finding Miss Froy, eluding Dr. Hartz, shootout, and then the epilogue. And I only put the epilogue at, at the end because it leaves a lot more questions than answers. But out of these, what would you say is the best scene, per se? The lady vanishes. Yeah, the initial scene where you find her in the car and there's this confusion and all, all of the stuff that's going on with that initial disappearance I think is important to the nature of the film and you've got to really buy into that scene otherwise the movie doesn't work yes it's it's gaslighting before gaslight true six years ahead of time and um you know you can just feel her frustrations like I'm not crazy I know what I saw and I know what took place yet no one is corroborating what I'm saying what the heck's going on here? Yeah, and it's interesting that not everybody is bought and paid for, like the uh, guys in the actual car itself with her, as opposed to the two, I would you call it a mistress and a mistress? And sure, the other two cricket guys who just don't want to be bothered. They somehow get lucky by none of them wanting to participate. 
Well, they were worried that participation would cause the train to be delayed, and then they would miss the cricket match. Understood, but, and I mean, they do go to lengths to explain that part. However, you're still taking a chance that they're not going to have said, oh yeah, there was this lady on the train with us. I mean, even the moment where the one woman is willing to identify or at least say something, and then she says Miss Coomer, I think it is, uh, is the uh, party that she saw. Sure. So favorite scene, I have eluding Dr. Hearts. I think that's when the movie gets at its kind of like peak moments of action and fun is him kind of crawling out the window, them kind of fake fainting or passing out or whatever, and getting the upper hand on Dr. Hearts. For me, that was probably the best part of the movie. For me, it's again, the lady vanishes because I can feel being in a situation where I'm telling people something that's happening and no one is believing me. It immediately, when I'm watching this, took me back to first grade when I kept telling the teacher there was a snake popping its head out of the radiator in the classroom. And then she called me a liar, told me I was going to have a detention, whatever. And then all of a sudden, I said it and I pointed and the snake's head was out and like four of their kids went, yeah. And so they, uh, school custodian had to come in and find, and sure enough, a garner snake had crawled in. And every time the heat would go up, he would stick his head up because it got too warm. So I knew exactly how she felt. So you've been a troublemaker for that long, huh? I've been a troublemaker from before that even. Mm. Most indelible moment to me. Iris leaving her fiancé because it's such a confusing moment. <laughs> uh, that is a separate scene? Yeah. Well, I mean, a moment. Okay. Okay, fine. But the thing that I remember is just the like clunky ending to this, where are we supposed to infer that she's never met her fiancé before? I mean, is that how things were done at the time? No, she saw him and then ducked out because she didn't want to marry him. She's like, looked at so him and went, Ugh. she can just run away from him? Like, how did they get engaged in the first place? I mean, it, it it raises so many questions about that whole situation with her to begin with. Yeah, well, mine was the shootout for the simple fact is, is that as much as I appreciate Hitchcock and I love Hitchcock, what he does and such, it's so implausible i mean you get guys who are trained soldiers and they got one or one or two guys with handguns shooting and none of them get killed except the guy who steps off the damn train waving a white flag and it's also bad tactics like they should have waited for them to try and enter the train so it bottlenecks and then they can just pick them off one by one at close range correct and moreover the train soldiers get shot, but none of the passengers. And the trained soldiers would have more weapons, more firepower. They would just overwhelm the train. So it was so implausible. I still don't think that uh, the casualty or injury list would have been so low either. Probably not. Also, their accuracy was like devilishly on for like basically ducking their head around a windowsill and then like 
taking a pot shot with a handgun. I mean, there are trained marksmen using a handgun at that range that couldn't hit a target of, you know, six or seven inches, and yet, bang, they hit and kill somebody, you know, who just sticks their head over the edge of the car. That one was the one that raised raised real um, questions in my head. Plausibility, sure. Well, anyway, that's a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movies of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 168 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. John Carney, 93, Scottish actor. A Night to Remember, Cleopatra, Jason and the Argonauts. Author and painter also. Steve Harwell, 56, American singer, was in the band Smash Mouth. Marcia DeRossi, 70, American actress, was in True Blood, St. Elsewhere, and Schooled. Gary Wright, 80, American singer-songwriter. Two songs that I remember very well. Dream Weaver and Love is Alive, and a musician in the band's Spooky Tooth. And Jimmy Buffett, 76, American singer-songwriter, Margaritaville, Cheeseburger in Paradise, and founder of Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. I don't have a lot to say on this collection of people. In If you want you know, a remembrance of Jimmy Buffett, I, there are plenty on the internet to find. I was not particularly close to his music. I had a certain level of respect for him as a businessman, making one song become like an empire. I thought one of the best ideas anyone has ever had was Margaritaville-themed retirement homes or assisted living. That that just seemed fantastic. Unfortunately, he had to do it in Florida, but, you know, whatever. Gary Wright, I knew of his music, but it's, again, not somebody that I knew particularly closely. I guess the one that I would probably have the closest affiliation to is Steve Harwell, because I enjoyed a lot of Smash Mouth songs that were popular around the time that I was in middle school or, I guess... Probably even like grade school, because some of those songs were big about 1999, 19 or 2000 or so. And I would say those uh, would be in my fourth, fifth grade years. But obviously, you know, I think part of the biggest claim to fame for them is, is that they were big in the sound or original soundtrack for Shrek. So that became a, a big deal. But other than that, I know that... Uh, They've all contributed quite a lot to the industry, and several of these people have been very close to people personally, and so it's important for us to yet again recognize people who may not otherwise have gotten their due. So we recognize them here with a moment of silence in their honor. 
Thank you. All right, I only have two best lines. Yeah. Gilbert, come on, sit down, take it easy. What's the trouble? Iris, if you must know, something fell on my head. When? Infancy? <laughs> Gilbert, can I help? Iris, only by going away. Gilbert, no, 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 no. My father always taught me, never desert a lady in trouble. He even carried that as far as marrying mother. Charters, you can't expect to put the two of us up in the maid's room. Hotel manager, well, don't get excited. I'll remove the maid out. Iris, you're the most contemptible person I've ever met in all my life. Gilbert, confidentially, I think you're a bit of a stinker, too. I'm out. Gilbert, what was she wearing? Scottish tweed, wasn't it? Iris, oatmeal tweeds. Gilbert, I knew it had something to do with porridge. And I'm out. All right, let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go first. All right. This is still on a lot of uh, top movie lists. It's considered a classic in British film. Uh, critics love it. So I'm going to give it a four for Legacy simply because of that. A little bit down because at least here it's not as well received or thought. So is that four out of ten or is that four That's for in the one industry. side? Okay. For the public, I'm going with a 1.5 because... Even I had not seen the film, and I'm considering myself a Hitchcock aficionado, and I only saw it a couple years ago because it just wasn't one that, you know, you considered when you're talking about Hitchcock and his films. I think if you went and talked to 100 people and asked a question about the film, you might have one, two, three that would know anything about the film, I'm giving it a little or a half point higher because my guess is it's a little bit more well-known in Great Britain than here. So I went with a 5.5 for the total. I think it really depends on where you're asking the 100 people. If you're just on the street in Wisconsin Rapids, there won't be a single person that will know of this film. If you do it on State Street in Madison, you might get two. Now, I might be willing to come to your number. I'm not so different from you. The only reason that I would have to give this slightly up to your four, though, is if you could extrapolate that this is the movie that allows Alfred Hitchcock to move to America and then like really jumpstart and popularize his career. I think to extent that exactly because as this film was being released, he was negotiating with several Hollywood studios to make the leap when this film became a huge seller extreme box office draw it cemented his ability to come to america all right so i guess i can match yours then but i originally had a five i had a 3.5 for the industry i also matched the 1.5 for the audience i'm not even sure we should probably even go that high uh, I, I i originally had it as a one but just thinking about the fact that it's so popular yet in Britain as one of the great films. What evidence do we have to say that it's a popular film in Britain? It's on critics lists, which we would count as part of the industry, but that's not the audience. It's not like this is like been voted uh, one of Great Britain's favorite movies. 
<laughs> you know, it's not like they're showing it every Christmas or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all right. I think we're wavering. Yeah, we might give up the half point to the industry, but we may need to go down about a half point on the uh, audience score here for the five instead of the 5.5. All right, that's fine. So do you want to help me with the math on that one? Uh, I think it's five, isn't it? I, I believe you're right. Impact and significance. So this is where I would give extra credence to Hitchcock coming over, given that he comes to America and the first movie he makes is the Best Picture winner. It's one of the few like award success movies that he ever had. He starts making some fairly big films. It's not like his all time films, but within five years, he's making Shadow of a Doubt, which we've discussed on the show. And he made both Sabotage and Saboteur. And I can't remember what's there's one with Cary Grant. And I want to say Notorious. Okay, maybe it's Notorious. Cary Grant. Uh, You sure? Because I thought Notorious was 1946. 44. Okay, but that's not within the five year period. So all is all of that is just to say that if you're truly saying that this movie was a hit and it promoted his coming to America and doing even more popular films, I would say that that puts me up to about a four on the industry side of it and a four on the audience. I had an eight. It made Hitchcock as popular of a director in England as any director was in the United States. It placed him on par in England with Capra, Michael Curtis, and some of those directors from the late 30s. And Michael Curtis was not a big filmmaker at the time. Well, okay. But uh, it placed him on that level, okay, the higher level. And it started a bidding war among the various studios as to who was going to get him and bring him to America. This film also was the largest box office draw in England in that at that time frame and set the records for most or largest audience up to that time in England. So I went with a five for the industry because of the impact, and I went with a five for the public because it drew the largest group and then when it was ultimately released to the United States, it was one of the bigger draws in the United States in re-release here after Hitchcock came to America. I see no evidence for trying to put this at a five and a five for like one of the biggest movies of all time. When we're talking about a day and age, the very next year, we would have an overwhelming success with Gone with the Wind. And this was not nearly on par with that type of movie. So while it was popular in Britain and it was popular in New York, I just don't see the evidence saying that this was widely popular in the United States. I think it's part of the reason that it still hasn't held on to a certain level of legacy or acclaim with the at least an American audience to this point. And from an industry standpoint, I'm just not quite to the point where it's a four because it's not like Hitchcock came over and had these huge movies like right away. He had one really big one and he had a couple of smaller ones that I would say that you could put in his upper level, but he didn't have his best successes until you start 
talking about about 1954 and later, in my opinion. When we're talking about a 10, we're talking about Star Wars. We're talking about Jaws. We're talking about eventually Gone with the Wind. Okay. This, I'm not sure I would get to that level. You can stay at your 10 because it'll still be a nine in the average. I'm just saying I can't quite get there. I'll go down to four and four. All right. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you to. I'm just arguing it against it. I understand. Why do you seem so hurt? I'm not. Okay, Eeyore. Oh, golly. All right, novelty. Disappearances on a train are not in and amongst themselves novel, even amongst Hitchcock movies. And while, yes, this is maybe the precursor to some of the other works he would eventually do, movies on trains had been going on for quite a while. Disappearances, mysteries had been going on for quite a while. I'm just not seeing where this is particularly novel amongst his work or work of the time where I think this movie gets its points is in its execution. It has good lead performances. You highlighted the direction, which again, if you're going to place it in its time, then yes, I could probably give you some points for, I wouldn't say bland direction, but it's kind of ordinary compared to a lot of the flair that Hitchcock would eventually develop with his style later on. So with that being said, I went with a straight five. I think it was a bit more novel. I went with a seven because I think it was much more fundamental for the genre than what you're thinking. So I think really it kind of established more on the train and the mystery and how things were set up and all of that. Well, that's a six average between the two of us. Classicness, I'll let you lead. There, I didn't find too much that was not classic. I mean, it wasn't like there was, we had strong female leads. We had, overall, I didn't see anything that was, that kind of made me cringe as far as things that didn't apply. But some of the implausibility in whole, in holes in the uh, plot and the, um, Scheme, give it a few points down. So classicness, I went with the seven for more about the plot holes and some of the other pitfalls or trap falls than uh, I normally would. Okay, so you went with the baseline. Yep. Again, we're not very far off or very different on this. The movie does feel dated, particularly because it's a couple of years ahead of World War II. And using this fictionalized country where you're having these, I don't know, alternating spy crusades, you didn't need to necessarily make it fictionalized uh, for it to be valuable. So maybe that's a underdeveloped part of the script. I would say there's some implausibility with some of the story itself. Part of the thing that bothered me a little bit as well is just kind of the old sentiments on marriage, which feel very, I wouldn't even say outdated, ancient in in sentimentality. So while I don't see anything that was necessarily cringy in this, I still can't quite get to the full seven baseline. I went with a 6.5, maybe just because I'm nitpicking a little bit. So that would be a 6.75 average between the two of us. Rewatchability. Even though I enjoyed the film, 
I would still only give it about a two that I would probably turn this on on my own. It's just not something that I feel like I'm I'm needing to watch or go back to regularly. Although, to be fair, I very rarely go back and rewatch a lot of films. There's frankly too much content available and too much new stuff coming out all the time for me to be devoting time to going back to rewatch stuff. I will occasionally do it, especially if there's a purpose for like the show or the movie challenge that I'm doing for the revisionist almanac that I'm a friend of. But it's not something that I'm in the habit of. So the two is probably a little bit generous. But if it's on, I'm going to give it a four. I think this is something that I would definitely leave on. It was enjoyable enough that I would have absolutely no objection to leaving it on. So I had a six. I've seen it twice now within the last year. I think it loses a lot when you know exactly what's taking place. I I actually, as far as rewatchability, because it misses a lot of the traditional Hitchcock flares, because it's one of his early works, I'm less inclined to rewatch this. So I'm actually going to go with a 5.5. Interesting. Because I literally was going to give a 5.5, and then I changed it here at the last second as I was thinking about it. So that's a 5.75 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 89% for Google users and an 88% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.85. So to recap the categories, we had a 5 for Legacy, an 8 for Impact and Significance, a 6 for Novelty, a 6.75 for Classicness, a 5.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.85 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... 40.5 and currently placing it on our list between Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Moving to remaining questions. Why wouldn't you wave your white flag like out before like exposing yourself to being shot at and exiting the train? He was a lawyer. Most of them don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, that's kind of you. (laughs) How come Miss Froy, then Miss Coomer, couldn't communicate while bandaged since they were were not unconscious? Like, every time they start to unravel the bandages, you could see their eyes are open. There was no gag that was in there. I just don't understand how they couldn't, like, at least attempt to communicate when somebody else was in the room. (laughs) It makes no sense to me. Maybe it's nitpicky, but those two things bothered me when I was watching the film. So you already highlighted a few nitpicks. Did you have any other remaining questions? No, not really. I mean, no. Well, yes. How are you taking a trip or a trip by train to Britain? I mean, we didn't have a channel, so I don't know. How do you take a trip by train to Britain. I had to think that there was at least something that was built that was available to do that. Or you had at least a train that would take you to like a ferry that would allow you, but I guess they never mentioned that. No. They went on a train to England. 
there's a, another European country on the in the British Isles that I'm unfamiliar with, or does the train like launch from from uh, the Pas de Calais? I don't know. Remaining thoughts for the week. I, I wish the strike were resolved. We we just came out of the pandemic and we lost so much opportunity and so many things, shows, movies, etc. We just started getting things built up and now everything is starting to dwindle back down again. And I just wish they would figure out some way to resolve it. Well, I wish... Also, that the strike would be resolved. Again, I think this is an existential problem for two different parts of the industry. It's all of the people and all of the talent, the writers, the actors, to an extent the directors and even the producers, who have said, do you want us to even exist? Or do you just want a computer to spit out something at you? Versus those that actually are taking the risk and putting the money up for all of this stuff and have created the business backbone. But at the same time, the actual industry makers have been rather curt and short-sighted about the whole thing because, once again, they have to respond to market pressures. And every time we see that the market is controlling decision-making, especially in a short-term sense, we've seen that it does not work out well for all those people that are actually interested in what's going on. Everybody else gets left in the lurch except the people that are trying to make the money. And while, yes, we've gotten a lot of shows canceled, How I Met Your Father got canceled, several other shows that are, or movies have since been canceled, other ideas that were about to be filmed, and they're holding this somewhat over the talent's heads, they were also creating content at an unsustainable level over the last several years, whether it was Netflix or HBO Max or whatever else, and then they were putting this rather stupidly while trying to maintain a cable model where they still have a lot of money invested in and are deriving a lot of their revenue that's keeping them afloat, i.e. Disney or Warner's. They still have a lot of content that they didn't put on both places because they wanted to double dip and allow you to both sign up for the streaming, but then also pay for the cable. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't really work because America can only pay for so much, especially in a high inflation environment. So I think a lot of this is on the industry to kind of bend over and take a little bit of this and know that they can't produce the level of content that they were, especially in an environment where they're losing market share to YouTube and TikTok. I understand because every time there's a technological innovation, it has a detrimental effect ultimately on the industry itself. I mean, from sound films, then to television, uh, well, it was radio, then television, then uh, television advancing. And then, uh, you know, each time movie theaters, movie uh, cinema, movie companies, movie studios had to figure out ways to adjust. Right now, the driving force behind this strike is artificial intelligence and how it's I going don't to think be that's controlled. The, that's the driving force. I think that's the next thing and that they're adding this as a additional marker on it. But it's not the thing that drove them into the strike to begin with. 
Well, it's how streaming is priced, how it's paid, how residuals are paid. I think streaming is what this ultimately has been about, or the streaming culture and Netflix, and then the introduction of two primary players that don't need to worry about a profit margin in Apple and Amazon that have businesses priced at different things, so their offerings are just completely different versus the traditional studio models that do have to derive a profit because it's their only basis and the traditional media models. So Disney having ABC, ESPN, the Disney Channel, Warner's having TNT, TBS, etc. They have to compete with Netflix that is only putting stuff on Netflix and they're slowly going to make the transition. Now, AI will be the next frontier of what they're going to argue over, which is why they're trying to do it now, because they think if they can at least set a deal and some ground rules in place ahead of time, they can get ahead of what the next fight is going to be. And that's why this is coming up. But I think the fight has been about the last 10 years of content creation because streaming has become the primary model for all of the advertising drivers, the people in my age range from age 18 to 49. Sure which I'm right smack in the middle of. Because you are still influenced by advertising. Correct. Although it's a lot less than most people, I would assume. Probably. I have particular brands I stick to. They don't want to market to me because they can run as many ads as they want. I'm not buying shitty Budweiser beer. Fair enough. But then again, you're not buying beer much. When I go out... I'll have a beer or two. Exactly. A beer or two. I don't generally drink beer at home. Yeah, but you're only doing it on a limited basis. You're in your model. You still would drink Jim Beam, which would be something that would be advertised. You'd drink wild turkey. (sighs) You'd drink Jack Daniels. If there were no alternatives. Okay, fine. Well, I mean, I don't know what your palate is anymore if if you've advanced beyond those. And uh, who's pretentious now, mind you? But regardless, I do think that there will be plenty of good content yet to come. There are several good films that came out from the festivals that have gotten a lot of attention that I'm very excited about. And even though a few of the bigger studio films that they're relying on to be major tent poles like Dune or stuff that had to be advertised with stars like Challengers, isn't coming out till next year. I'm not too particularly concerned yet for what the fall or winter movie slate is. But if we get past New Year's, and this is still a thing, then I'm really worried. But we're not anywhere close to that yet. It'll be fine. I mean, there's plenty of content for you to catch up on from the last few years that you've missed anyway. You just keep telling me that you don't want to watch stuff that isn't like necessarily lighthearted or fun because it's too heavy for you even to watch a regular drama. (laughs) Uh, I have drama from about 7 a.m. until about 6 p.m. every day. Well, that's because of who you choose to live with or has been chosen for you because of whom you chose to live with. Uh, That's only part of it. The career path I I chose. Sure. So don't blame these other than the other choices that you've made. 
That's all my point was. But anyway, I suppose that's a good spot to stop for the week. Thank you for listening. What you looking at, old man? Ever notice how you come across somebody once in a while you shouldn't have fucked with? That's me. Next week, for our 182nd episode, we discuss the Clint Eastwood thriller Grand Torino from 2008, celebrating its 15th anniversary. Directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Nick Schenk, music by Kyle Eastwood and Michael Stevens, starring Clint Eastwood and D. Bang. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R E E L G O O D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Gray's Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>